As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our Champions League Game Week 2 review. It seems like only a week ago we were talking about Game Week 1. <laughs> Time flies quicker than Erling Haaland flies at the back post. It was a vantage Bayern in the Lewandowski derby. Liverpool left it late for their first European win of the campaign. Spurs embraced their Spursy roots. Real Madrid, they're still perfect. Graham Potter gave us a sterling performance of sorts. And the pressure is piling on Max Allegri at Juventus. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me to discuss all the Champions League action is a man whose seat isn't quite as hot as Max Allegri's right now. Is it Taylor Rockwell? I would hope not, because uh, he is basically sitting on top of a stove, it feels like, as I'm assuming Juve executives go off around Europe and have meetings in secret in hotel lobbies that Max Allegri is not told about, but is aware are happening. Doesn't seem like it'd be the most fun for him, but it is a lot of fun to be here with you, Ryan Bailey. Oh, likewise, Tate. I'm picturing uh, Mauricio Pochettino with the tape measure measuring the curtains in Max Allegri's <laughs> office. What are you doing in here? Nothing. 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 Just, you know, I really like this area... Uh, in the future. I'll like it a lot in the future, is all I'm saying. <laughs> Indeed. Also here, Taylor, a man who cheated on soccer with tennis last night, but we love him anyway. Graham Rusbin, hello. Hello, Ryan Bailey. Yes, I was watching the tennis in Glasgow until past midnight, and that wasn't even when it finished. The match finished at 1am, which is quite a late finish, and so I missed a lot of the Champions League matches, but I am all caught up and ready to talk all things uh, Starball. I'm going to call it that, Starball. Okay. <laughs> tennis after dark sounds fun. Um, I, having followed the tour for many years as well, I'm I'm always slightly baffled when games finish at like two yeah. or three a.m. How how what kind of god would allow this, Graham? Uh, it's ridiculous. I don't know why they started playing at at four p.m. in the afternoon and then were stunned that they didn't get through three matches before it was the next day. Yeah, and also we should mention. Well, should we mention this isn't a tennis podcast? But I'm going to mention it anyway. Roger Federer retiring today, which feels like a bit of an end of an era. And uh, tune in for Ryan and I's spin-off tennis podcast launching some to- some point in the future. We should uh, mention what what day what day are you all planning on launching that? Because I'll be busy that day and every ensuing day. Oh, you don't have any thoughts, no, Taylor, <laughs> on tennis? That's the one where you use the racket, right? Yes, that is correct. Andre yeah. Agassi. That's what I have to say. 
Why don't you quit making your racket right now, TT? We've got one yeah. more man to introduce. You just heard him. He's a man who loves to see Christian Pulisic get continental minutes, even if they're kind of a wing back, Joe Larry. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be such a weird narrative. Again, we're going to go through the same thing under Graham Potter because he basically plays a lot of the same soccer that Thomas Tuchel played. Raheem Sterling played left wing back for an hour the other day. So, I mean, maybe there's something to this. I don't know, guys. I don't know indeed. Maybe we should delve into that a little later on, Joseph. Uh, but for now, why don't we start off with Bayern Munich 2, Barcelona nil. Luca Hernandez and Leroy Sane getting the goals for Bayern Munich here. Uh, Graham, what do we make of this game? It seemed like um, Bayern were certainly the stronger team in the first half from what I could observe here. And Robert Lewandowski used to be better at scoring in this stadium. <laughs> Yeah, so I th- you said Bayern there. I assume you mean Barcelona better in, in, in the first half. I, th- I thought this match lived up to expectations. Um, and at this stage of the competition, it might not have had all that much riding on it. Although this is the group of death, so teams do need points to make the last 16. But I thought it was a, a fun match. Barca dominated much of the first half. Bayern Munich were fortunate, I thought, not to concede in that first half. And, and the game plan was was working well. For Barcelona, and that plan was essentially to get Dembele and Rafinha high in the wide spaces, isolate the Bayern Munich fullbacks, and find Lewandowski in the middle with Gavi and, and Pedri supporting him. Pretty, pretty straightforward, but as I say, it was it was it was effective. And the threat of those two wide men for Barcelona forced Nagelsmann to alter his system a bit. So Müller was used to the middle, Mane was out on the left, Sané was out on the right side, and that's a that's a little bit different to what we've seen from Nagelsmann this season. They've been playing very narrow. But Nagelsmann recognised he couldn't give Barcelona so much space in the wild, wide areas and, and he tried to react, but it, it didn't really work in the first half. So Barcelona were aggressive in their pressing and, and, and he, Xavi was pushing four, sometimes five players to the front to press directly against the Bayern Munich defensive four to stop them from playing out from the back and through the middle. And they were on top. They had they had control. They had a lot of opportunities. In fact, Barcelona had 10 shots in the first half of this match, which made them the first away team at the Allianz Arena to have that many shots in a Champions League game since Fiorentina in 2008, which is going back quite a while. Um, and it's unusual to see a team go away to Bayern Munich and play like this. Um, and then Nagelsmann made the changes at halftime and the dynamic kind of shifted. Graham, I, I appreciate the point about the halftime changes because... When you look at it, like just from like a mile away, it's very much like, oh, they had a bunch of numbers in the middle, Bayern Munich, in the first half, and it got clogged and it didn't really work, and Barca pressed them. They weren't able to get anything going. Then they spread the ball out and they, and they went wide, and suddenly they could create chances. Like how, how innovative a solution. But it really is, it's the Cruyff quote of, uh, playing football is very simple, but playing simple football is the hardest thing there is. That's what this reminded me of, because just sending players wider, doesn't necessarily seem like that uh, big of a feat. It's not that huge of an accomplishment. But when you have to adjust your game plan and kind of change stylistically the way you're trying to build an attack, but then continue to make it fluid, continue to have the combinations that uh, Bayern Munich did, and ultimately uh, that second goal, Joe, I know you've got some thoughts on that one. But for me, that was a moment of kind of like genuine genius from Nagelsmann and Bayern Munich that he makes these little tweaks, but every player is able to respond. It shows how well coached they are, how well instructed, that everybody sort of knows what's expected, knows where they need to be, knows how to play off of each other. And instead of playing against this compact Barca defense, now you've got gaps and openings and Bayern are more than happy to attack them. Well, and we should note that that defensive block from Barcelona on the sequence for the second goal that Leroy Sané scores that puts Bayern up 2-0... 
Barca's defensive block is just dreadful. It's just yeah. it's just awful. Not quite so a, it's like a Swiss cheese block. They yeah. they kind of parted the Red Sea at least like halfway or most of the way. Maybe there's still a few droplets dropping on in. But I mean it was it was pretty there for the taking. But still, a very nice goal from Byron that does illustrate some of the tweaks that you guys have already talked about about trying to use more width to unbalance Barcelona and then attack central spaces instead of at the beginning, and, and we haven't talked a, a ton about Bayern Munich's personnel in this game. It's Sadio Mane off on the left, and then Musiala and Thomas Muller in the center, and then Leroy Sané on the right. So lots of speed on the, on the right side, but Sadio Mane pinching in sometimes into the left half space. Musiala and Muller central, trying to form somewhat of a box with, with Kimmich and, and all the other players in this Bayern team are sort of pinching inside. So on this goal, it's Byron in possession. It's Musiala who finds a, a pocket of space, and then he goes forward and plays it to Sané, who drives forward and, and really does cut through the middle of this empty waterbed and scores. So Barcelona are in their 4-4-2 block, and there's, there's space between Pedri and Gavi, who are playing as the two central infielders in that moment with Busquets having rotated up high. Uh, that's not where you want him to be, but that's where he happens to be on this sequence. And Byron have the ball on the right side, and Barca's left side. So Musiala has space to find the ball because there's so much there's so much of it between Barcelona defenders. Then Gavi gets his pursuit angle all wrong, trying to come from Barcelona's right, Bayern Munich's left. And then Musiala just waltzes right down the middle, finds Sané. Thomas Muller makes a very smart run, we should add to this as well, to take a center back away for Barcelona. Then there's a lot of space between, I believe it's Araujo and Kunde in this game as the right, right-sided center back and the right back. It's, it's a great sequence of moves, of positioning, of possession play from Bayern Munich. Equally sort of troubling defensive mistakes from Barcelona, which should be said... We've already mentioned it, but they were in the driver's seat in this game, which is really hard to do against Bayern Munich. I know they haven't been getting results in the league right now, and Barcelona have, but still, it's hard to do that in Germany. They were doing it. They were the better team in the first half. Bayern could not build through the press. Barcelona were controlling large stretches of this game. Then five minutes into the half, they give up a, a corner kick goal to Lucas Hernandez, which is a nice goal, but Marcus Alonso just gets beaten. And Ridiculous. then four minutes after that, Leroy Sané scores, and, and that basically ices the game because Bayern Munich don't give up 2-0 leads very often. Yeah. So Bayern were, I mean, Barcelona excuse me, were so close in this game to putting in like maybe the classic. Nah, probably El Clasico last year under Xavi was the classic Barcelona result of his tenure. But, but one of those sorts of results, and I think that's where we see the weakness in this team right now, is maybe they just don't have the fortitude or, or some of the, the experience under Xavi to go out and, and really hold on to some of those leads and avoid those kinds of mistakes. Joe, I'm, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on, because as we know, you're a resident socio this season. Correct. I'm interested in what your thoughts are on Barcelona's fullback situation, because the changes that Nagelsmann made in this second half seem to be designed to exploit the Barcelona yeah. fullbacks. And they, Barcelona allowed this match to become far too transitional in the second half. And I find it kind of amazing that for all the money that they have spent and they have a... a a generally brilliant squad and they've signed excellent players who seem to, most of them have hit the ground running. But then you look at their fullbacks and they've ended up in a position where their fullbacks, to my eye, are just so limited. Marcus yeah. Alonso, to my, to, for me, he can't play left back in a back four. He doesn't have the mobility to get up and down. He doesn't have this defensive instincts as shown for the, the corner kick goal that Byron score. And then you have the opposite problem with Kunde on the right side, who is a good defender, but doesn't have the attacking instincts you want from a modern fullback. So do you think what Bayern Munich did in this second half is going to become a problem for Barcelona because other teams are now going to look at the changes they made and how you can, you can expose this Barcelona defense. 
Well, it depends on what we mean by problem and by other teams, because so few teams in the world can exploit <laughs> things like Bayern Munich do, right? I mean, the thing I talk about all the time with this team is how fast they are. They are absurdly, ridiculously fast, and, and that makes life pretty miserable for opposing fullbacks, no matter who they are. So that's part of this. But yeah, Graham, to your point, I think the fullbacks are a pretty obvious weakness of this team. I think maybe some of the defensive structural stuff on a more macro level that we saw exposed in this game is a concern going forward. But Marcus Alonso, I I don't think, and we saw this on the set piece, but I think you could apply this to open play as well. I'm, I'm baffled behind why Barcelona would choose to make that move. That kind of just felt like a a move for the sake of making a move. Yeah, Jordi Alba needs some cover at that left-back spot, but is Marcus Alonso the player to do that? He's 31 years old. He's not the same athlete that he used to be, and that's what uh, that's what Barcelona end up needing so much in that spot is because they have quality all over the field. They need someone who can press and counter and win the ball back and then get on the overlap. So that, that struck me as odd. Kunde I like, and I think he actually fits Xavi's idea of having a more reserved right back who can either tuck inside in possession into midfield or more likely in Kunde's case, tuck into the back three, right, and, ma- and make a back three. Sergino Des doesn't do that stuff and he's gone. But you know who else doesn't really do that stuff? Hector Bellerin. So I don't fully understand. We saw Bellerin tuck inside over the weekend, and there's some good stuff there. But I am kind of baffled by Barcelona's business, and I do think fullback is an area that opposing teams could exploit, maybe not to Bayern's level, but to some extent as the season goes. Uh, most of them have hit the ground running, is what Graham said about Barcelona signings. Franck Cassier would like a word with you, Graham Ruthven, who <laughs> uh, continues to play, I guess, minutes. He's played in five of their games so far this season, but I think for a total of like 128 minutes. Kind of keep forgetting they, he's there until he's subbed yeah, on. Need him. They did no. not need Frank Frank Cassier. That was another signing for a signing's sake. But Lemdoski, Rafinha... Um, there's got to be others. Tell me there's more than two that Kess- have hit the ground running. Kessier kind of feels like the move they made to preempt Frankie de Jong going to Manchester. And then Frankie de Jong sort of said, mm, yeah, nah, it's not going to happen. I'm going to hang out with Frank out here in Barcelona. Yeah, completely by his own choice there, Joe, I'm sure. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, yeah. Maybe Kessier's got one of those contracts where he can only come on for a certain amount of minutes like uh, Griezmann. Maybe Barcelona have to pay themselves <laughs> double if, uh, if he comes on for longer than they 10 They pay minutes. their players by the minute, yeah. <laughs> Holistic for Kessier swap deal. Who says no? Everybody? Everybody says no? All right. Just Chelsea, I think, <laughs> probably. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Graham, let's see. Yeah, yeah, Rafinha, Kunde, Lewandowski, Kessier, Christensen, Be- uh, Bayern, Alonso, and then, yeah, those, those are your signings this season. Yeah, a good number of those have started yeah. okay. Rafinha, Lewandowski, Kunde have started well. I'd say Bellerin had a good debut and Christensen's done okay. It's just yeah. Alonso, really, that is the, the dud so far, I think. And he really, Joe, just to really emphasize what you said, watching that again, it's the type of goal that if you can see it at like amateur level, you are very thankful that there aren't cameras around because the corner, yeah. uh, who knows what happened there. But man, Marcus Alonso just does not mark Hernandez at all. He marks him in the sense that he's holding his jersey when that ball is taken and then just decides like, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to watch that ball. Oh, he scored? Well, I'm going to walk away sheepishly and hope that nobody says anything. <laughs> I'm guessing when they watch some tape of this game, he'll hear some words. I get scored on in that moment, and I'm looking around to see, like, oh, was that was that your guy? Was that was that somebody else? That wasn't my guy. I don't know who that was. I was Zonal. We weren't, wait, we weren't Zonal? What? At least he didn't do the, like, falling over, holding his eye. Like, oh, I, something <laughs> happened. I don't know what happened. Something happened. All right, well, Bayern Munich tend to get maximum points in the Champions League group stage. They are at that stage so far with six. Uh, Barcelona have three after two games in Group C. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's talk about the goings-on at Anfield. Back shortly. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our Champions League review. Liverpool 2, Ajax 1, an 89th minute winner for Liverpool coming from the head of Joel Matip, sealing the Reds' first uh, Champions League win for this season. Certainly, Taylor Rocco, a better performance than against Napoli last week. Um, what did you make of this one? I thought it was a, a really, really fun game. It was kind of what I expected it to be. Uh, I did think Liverpool would have a kind of resounding bounce back, a, a, a big performance here. And I think getting the win the way they did will certainly like buoy the spirits a little bit, keep them motivated. But for Ajax, a team that we've talked about many times is just having been gutted this offseason to continue to be the problem that they are in terms of the problems they present to opposition is just so commendable. Mohamed Kudus, uh, we, we talked about him in relation to the Africa Cup of Nations, but here he is uh, basically stepping in and being a central figure for this. IX team and a central so figure good. that I'm assuming next summer will be commanding a 60 to 70 yeah. million pound fee. So IX have that to look forward to. Uh, the one thing IX I would say do not have to look forward to is similar to Marcus Alonso watching tape of this one. I am not a big fan of the coaches hate conceding on corners or set pieces cliche because to me, yes, I guess it's a thing you can prepare for. But at the same time, the other team tends to run drills and have these uh, well choreographed, well orchestrated set pieces. They can be really difficult to defend. But here, Alfred Schroeder, uh, the Ajax manager, has to be fuming because Joel Matip is just unmarked. Watch, I kept watching this trying to figure out what happened. And there's not a very good explanation. It's just that there are so many players in the box. I think Ajax, every single player thinks they are man marked. Uh, I forget who it is who's actually, I think it's Bassi is supposed to be on Matip, but he's has like six players between him and Matip before the corner is even taken. It's not like he loses him in the scrum. Not a great uh, Champions League uh, match day when it comes to set-piece defending uh, between Marcus Alonso and this one. But yeah. credit to Matip for fighting through and getting that, getting that header and to Liverpool for getting that win. And the other thing about that goal was that Liverpool, I'm not exaggerating, had about four or five other headed opportunities from corner kicks before they scored yeah. the, that one. And I think part of that was down to just the the additional physicality that Liverpool have. When you're looking at Ajax from a cor- from corner kicks, to to my eye, they they look quite a, quite a short team, certainly not as physical as Liverpool. So there were some mismatches in there yeah. is basically what I'm saying. But nonetheless, when you have, you know, five, four or five opportunities, when you're given a team that many opportunities to score from set pieces, I agree with you, Taylor. I, I can't imagine that Schroeder was, was too happy about that. 
Um, I also think, uh, sorry, Ryan, I also think in terms of cliches, this game presented another one, not just the set pieces, set pieces, set pieces, but Trent Alexander-Arnold's defensive capabilities, also a talking point in this one, and I think justifiably so, because for every great ball he puts into the box, for every attacking chance he creates, every shot from distance that just barely goes over or gets pushed over, he has these moments, and, and Ajax's goal, I'm going to put almost entirely on Trent Alexander-Arnold because he takes a too narrow starting position to begin with. Then he sort of holds to allow an overlapping run, then steps like after the ball is played and is completely cut out by that pass and then sort of jogs back. Uh, and I think Kudus ends up taking it across the goal and then finishing. And only as Kudus is about to shoot does Trent Alexander-Arnold sort of recognize, oh, I could probably make a play. And if he makes that decision one second earlier, two, second, two, two seconds earlier, he's there and blocks the shot or pokes it away. And it was just a defensive lap. Uh, he switches off for a second, but that's all it takes at this level. And he still has a good attacking game. He still makes defensive plays for the rest of the game. But it's these little moments that start to add up. We saw it against Napoli. We saw it here. We've seen it other times this season. He doesn't make it easy, is, is I guess what I'll say. Because I want to like him. I think he's a really exciting electric player. And he can do the defensive side when he is fully switched on. It's just those moments, those negative moments tend to happen far too often. Defense. Defending is for chumps. Defending is for chumps, Taylor. <laughs> I think the concerning thing about Alexander-Arnold is that he doesn't seem to be learning, doesn't seem to be improving. So he's 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 young, and this has been something he's had in his game for a while. But as I say, there doesn't seem to be any development. The, the, the issues he had last week are the same as this, this week. The issues he's having now are the same he was having last season and the season before that so that that is a little bit of a concern it's just kind of the trade-off right I mean this is why we haven't seen Trent Alexander-Arnold be the same player for England in large part that he's been for Liverpool because England play a much more conservative style that requires hard-nosed defending in their own half in particular Trent Alexander-Arnold gives you the counter-pressing stuff right he'll press and help you win the ball after you lose it in the attacking half but a lot of times he's not the best. We saw this against Kavara last week, right? He's not the best 1v1 defender in some of those moments. And in this case, Taylor, I think you're really wise to point this out. He's just not turned on. Like he, He's just not engaged actively in the play. And that's a problem. I think the distinction, though, between the immediate moments after Liverpool win the ball and sort of more defensive classic situations in your own half, there's a clear difference in, in Trent Alexander-Arnold's skill from one to the other. And at this point, I think it's it's also pretty clear that Jurgen Klopp has just decided to live with that because the benefit that he perceives Alexander-Arnold providing in the attack and in transition is greater than what you lose out by him just defending in your own half and, and not always doing the best job of that. It's a risk, but every decision you make in soccer is a risk. And I, I do think, generally speaking, not in this moment necessarily, Klopp has probably won that risk battle. Joe, can we get a general health check on Liverpool at the moment? It seemed like maybe a bit more midfield fortitude in this one, maybe a bit more up for it in general. Yeah, I, I thought this game looked a lot more like Liverpool, right? After we talked about the Napoli result, and it was just, it was dreadful, right? Klopp was talking about how it, you know, it didn't look like us, and it didn't look like them. And one of the things that he pointed to in particular was how spread they were defensively and how they struggled to get pressure on the ball. He talked about, you know, after we lost it, I can't think of one good counter-pressing opportunity, and that was probably hyperbole. But in this game, Liverpool counter-pressed. They were aggressive. They were playing like themselves. They had some nice direct play uh, on goals, right? I mean, long ball from Allison to Luis Diaz, who heads it down. Jota wins the second ball. Jota to Salah, who scores. That's the opener in the 17th minute. And then Matt Teep scores a, a really nice header that Taylor already detailed for their second goal as the winner. And they were in control, partially because they had to be to get this result. 
for a large section, for, for most of this game. They didn't give up hardly anything to Ajax, so I think ended with like four shots in this game. Liverpool had the advantage on shots, had the XG advantage. They were playing like the aggressive, up-tempo Liverpool that we expect. Still not at full strength, right? Still not at full strength, but still a much, much better performance out of this Liverpool team, which I think does a lot to to remind us of how good they can be and also shows that it it was never really going to take, or maybe this is a premature thing to say, we need to see a few more games first, but I would be surprised if we see any major tactical evolution from Jurgen Klopp this season. The recipe that he has works very, very well. I don't think it was a coincidence that Thiago's back in the Liverpool team and all of a sudden they're they're playing a bit better. I thought this this match kind of underlined how important he is to Liverpool right now when they still have midfield injuries, but he more than anyone else just ties things together. And he, I thought he made a massive difference to the midfield in this match. He gave Liverpool control, completed 89% of his passes. He was applying pressure on the opposition when they had the ball. He regained possession 10 times. And um, I also thought Jota made a big difference in this match because I know there's been a lot of focus on the Liverpool defence, rightly so, and on the midfield as well, again, rightly so. But Liverpool's problems in recent matches have kind of stemmed from the front and that's that's where Jota made a, a big difference. So he starts as the focal point with Diaz on the left, Sal on the right. And he just offered so much as that energetic, everywhere all at once centre forward that Klopp likes to play. He won seven of his 10 duels. He won possession five times. He provides the assist for uh, Salah's opener. And it was the sort of performance we're, we're used to seeing from a Liverpool attacker where they offer plenty on both sides of the ball. So I think having those two players in the team made a, a big difference. Uh, Napoli leading Group A with maximum points. Liverpool in second with three, as do uh, as have Ajax, I should say, Taylor. Um, how are we feeling about Ajax? I know uh, Joe's a resident socio, but he very much was a um, Ajax fanboy, or maybe still is. But uh, uh, Taylor, I'll come to you. What, what do you make of this Ajax team? Do you fancy them getting through to the round of 16? Uh, Kudos, as you say, Mohamed Kudos was very good and very good against Rangers last week as well. Seems like they've got a lot of uh, parts to be stripped, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always going to be the case with Ajax. It's a really tough group because Napoli have started this season so strongly, uh, two wins from two in the group. Liverpool, we would assume, have the the depth of talent. They also have, I believe, two straight games against Rangers. Shots fired, but also, I think, shots appropriately fired because Rangers uh, have not won a game. Two losses from two games and a negative seven goal difference. Fully thinking Liverpool will have nine points after those two games. So then... Historically, I think 10 points is enough to get you out. I think it's going to be a harder feat to Ajax to achieve that. So I won't be surprised if Ajax go to the Europa League. I won't be surprised if they make a deep run in the Europa League and then maybe get pillaged at the end of the season. I hope they don't. I hope they make it through uh, because it's always fun when they're able to make the deep run like they did a few years ago. Uh, and it's always fun when I think I won't call them a smaller club. I don't know what the term is for a very big club who just aren't at that same monetary spend level of some of the other ones. But I think Ajax, for all of their traditions in history, it's always really nice to see them. And the way they're able to bounce back, I think, is a really positive sign for the way they approach building a team, building a system, playing a, a, a similar style with a strong structure that allows you to have the stability and consistency they have. Because there's many other teams, if they lost as many players as Ajax did and their manager, I think they're in the Champions League, but they are not doing particularly well. And so for Ajax to be even competitive, I think, is a, an achievement unto itself. It is indeed. Let's jump from Ajax to apparently a famous Ajax star reborn in Erling Haaland. Man City 2 versus Dortmund 1. Uh, John Stones scoring a banger and then 
Erling Haaland with something very, very special indeed, which his manager Pep Guardiola compared to the aforementioned Johan Cruyff and a goal he scored in Europe. Uh, I was very confused. Thank you for that. I was like, Erling Haaland played for Ajax? What? When did that happen? Uh, so there was a goal that Cruyff scored against uh, we'll say Atletico Madrid back in the mm. day, and Haaland's uh, outside-of-the-boot effort uh, at chest height was uh, compared to it by Pep, and I probably see. rightly so as well. I think and my Jokic's- favorite thing about that is that Cruyff would, because he's Cruyff, be like annoyed about that. Like, no, mine was better. Like, he wouldn't He wouldn't fully... You would expect a legend to be like, oh, yeah, yeah. no, like, credit to the kid. What a great goal. And I feel like Johan Cruyff would definitely think his was better. And Erling Holland couldn't even do it while chain smoking, so didn't even do it at all. <laughs> Cruyff was quite grumpy. Whisper it, Taylor. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, a, a pretty good win, Graham. This was for Manchester City. Now, we had a debate before we went on air about... Well, we didn't have a debate. There was comments made that Man City maybe aren't the most interesting team to watch, whereas I was watching this particularly after Dortmund made their changes, which opened it up for Manchester City. And just the passing on the left channels with Bernardo and and Foden and just the the through balls they are playing, I find them incredibly entertaining. Am I alone on this island, Greg? So in this match, this was a strange match because you would think Man City having to come from behind against a, a, a team with a lot of talent, Borussia Dortmund, would be an interesting match. I have to say that for the first kind of hour of this game, I, I thought it was it was quite a dull game. This season, I found Man City very interesting to watch because you've had to work out how they're going to integrate Erling Haaland. In the past, I found some of their possession play a little bit dull. Who can you can't argue with its effectiveness? But the comment I was making about Man City in terms of um, like I, I don't I think it's just a generational thing because when I was young in my formative years in football you don't get that kind of big game buzz with Manchester City that you do with lesser teams like poorer quality teams like Arsenal um, and even Manchester United and Liverpool I get that big game buzz when I watch them and I, and I don't get that with City yet but as I say that's not really a comment on them as a club I think that's just a generational thing because Joe was saying that he does get that but doesn't get that with some of the other teams that I've just mentioned there so as I say it I think it's just down to my age but this was a strange match in that City were very unlike City for much of the game and Dortmund were very unlike Dortmund for a lot of the game. So City were struggling to create and Dortmund, Dortmund looked solid at the back and those two things <laughs> don't happen, don't happen very often. Um, and City were struggling to get Haaland involved. They were passing sideways and backwards and not really going anywhere at all. Gundogan and De Bruyne, they weren't finding that space between the lines, between the, the, the Dortmund midfield and defence. And some of that was down to how compact Dortmund were, but City were very slow in their possession play for a lot of this game. And I think a lot of that, the problems came from the central defence, where City started Akanji and um, Nathan Ake, which obviously is, a, is an unusual, unfamiliar centre-back partnership for them. And neither of them were very comfortable at breaking the lines with their passing, which is something City us- usually have from players in that position. And it kind of took a triple change from Guardiola in that second half. He took off Mares, Grealish and Gundogan. They came off and they were replaced by Foden, Alvarez and, and Silva. And they made a difference and all of a sudden City started playing at a higher tempo and Dortmund were still sitting deep, particularly after Bellingham scored. And, and so it, was, it wasn't like City could play passes in behind, um, but Bernardo was very good at kind of linking the positions and yeah. buzzing around and floating between Haaland and De Bruyne and both, both sides. And they didn't really have that in, in, in the first half. The flip side of that is that City scored both goals through moments of individual brilliance that don't exactly show up in the numbers. But even in, in the way that Cancelo takes that cross to set up Haaland, he does it very early and you could see that City were trying to do things quickly. But City, City are definitely capable of more than we saw in this game, but it says a lot about the quality that they still managed to get the win. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, Joe, the turning point, I think, was that 78th-minute substitute for Schlotterbeck coming on for Modesta for Borussia Dortmund, going to a back five and then conceding rather quickly twice afterwards. Yeah. It seemed like they were so disciplined. They played so well, as Graham said. They, were, they had some fortitude in the back, and then it just went away at that point, it seemed. Well, and I'm baffled, absolutely baffled, by the defending from Dortmund on that last goal. It's the lovely ball from João Cancelo into Erling Haaland, who flies in and finishes to get the winner. Who's who's pressuring Jao Cancelo of all of all people? Jao Cancelo in that spot, shaded towards the the right, but really still like you know on the left. He's in that space that he loves so much, playing a pass that he loves so much. Granted, this is not the classic Jao Cancelo in swinger with his right foot. It actually has some outward swerve to it with how he hits it with his right. But Emery Chan is way too slow to close down Jao Cancelo. You are so close in that case, Dortmund. You're you're about ten minutes or less away from getting a point, a much-needed point against Manchester City that would put you level at the top of the group, not really because of goal difference, but still, that would at least get you even on points with City in this group. And Emre Chan is way too slow to close down Jao Cancelo and just gives him that pass inside. Now, it is a beautiful pass, but that could have been prevented. So I, 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 don't, I don't understand Dortmund's defending. There's clearly an error there. Another thing I wanted to ask Graham, Ryan, this isn't really related to what you asked me, but I didn't see this entire game. Grim, is this another example, like I think about earlier this season in the Premier League, we've had one or two examples of this, of City having to change how they play because of Erling Holland and his profile, and that changing how they control games and create chances? From, from what you saw in this game, I know you mentioned the center backs. Do you think any part of this is down to Holland not being actively engaged in possession and that making it harder for City to progress the ball, pull defenders out, and create chances? Yeah, I think I think that is related. So at halftime of this game, the the BT Sport panel were pulling out Haaland's uh, touch map, which has become a little bit of a cliche this season. That's the go-to to to criticise Manchester City, but there is some there is some uh, validity in looking at those touches. And I think he had either nine or ten in the first half of this match. It might actually have been less than that. Maybe that was the whole match. But um, yes, absolutely. I think if if Man City have Phil Foden in that number nine position. If they're starting Phil Foden as they did for much of last season, you have a much better opportunity of pulling uh, Sula and, and Mats Hummels out of position. You have much better opportunity of creating space for the likes of Mares and Grealish, who were both very, very quiet in this match. And it kind of took a restructuring of that, of that, um, of that attacking unit and bringing on Foden and Bernardo, who didn't really have, um, clear positions their their role was clearly to just get around Haaland and and make sure he wasn't so isolated so absolutely I do think the two are linked what 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 I if I was City I wouldn't be too worried about that because they're just such an adaptable team they've got so many different options now that even if that happens in the first half of a game in the Champions League which is you know the highest competition you're facing the best teams they they still can can switch focus and and win a match so I think Haaland has rounded out this squad but absolutely, yeah, that was a factor in, in the first kind of 60 minutes of this game. Yeah, 26 touches in the game, the fewest of any player, which is, as you mentioned, Graham, a stat that's always touted for Haaland at City now. Uh, Taylor, there was a line in the BBC match report that resonated with me. Uh, describing Haaland's goal, it said, City fans rejoiced as this was exactly the sort of moment the 22-year-old was signed for to decide big Champions League games that looked to be getting away from them. And it made me think, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It doesn't matter if he takes 26 touches. It's going to be in that semi-final when he has that very important moment, which is exactly what they signed him for. And it sounds a bit cliche to say it, but he is kind of that difference maker, isn't he? I mean, yeah, I- absolutely. I mean, you can remember 
all of the dribbles and the solving dribbles, but if they end in getting cleared out and a free kick or losing possession, it doesn't really matter. Whereas you will definitely remember the goals that make the difference, the goals that equalize, the goals that put you ahead, and especially this goal, which uh, the Athletic did a really good, good breakdown of just why it was such an effective ball from Cancelo, why it was such a good finish from Holland, but it, it all rests on Dortmund being in the exact right position when they're defending this one, and it's just such a brilliant ball, but it's also such an alert moment from Holland, and then he has the physicality, as they said in the broadcast, most forwards would lead with their head. He doesn't because he has the height and the jumping ability to be able to direct it with his foot. And I think that is a difference there. Maybe he gets ahead to it. Maybe he puts it on frame. But I think he's able to direct it more with his foot. And he does just that. And that is just such an amazing athletic feat, but also just such a physical presence and a thing that you have to believe gives Manchester City confidence confidence not with like to the early Holland level obviously but I have played in teams where you have just that one striker who is much better than the team deserves to be playing at a much higher level not saying that's the case with Holland it is not me sadly but there's something about having that player that you know just get the ball to him. He will make something happen. The one I will always reference, it's a, it's it's like the most esoteric reference possible. But there was a season when the Richmond Kickers had Onandi Lowe on their team, who was like the striker for Jamaica at the time. And he scored something insane, like 27 goals in 24 games. He scored every single game. And I remember the bench talking about, like, oh, has Onandi scored yet? Then we're fine. And he almost always would score. And that feels like what Erling Holland is to Man City. Yeah, we haven't created anything. We're not scoring goals. Ah, just get the ball to Holland. He's only had eight touches, but he will somehow manage to put it in the back of the net. Uh, that makes it just you can you kind of can't switch off with Man City. Defenses certainly can, but you, the viewer, should not because you never know what's going to happen. Indeed, and uh, Mr. Schlotterbeck didn't know what was going to happen. It was picky when he said, "I know how to handle Erling Haaland before the game." Can and I watched him? Yeah, jump. <laughs> I, I have to say, I'm going to sound like uh, uh, Graham Soonis a little bit here. Uh, a minor thing that I like, maybe I'm just like grumpy. Maybe, maybe my daughter woke up too early and, and wrong side of the bed. But I did not love the weird like line of people waiting to congratulate Erling Holland, who were all Dortmund players and their manager. It felt very like, thanks, Mister. We really appreciate. It. Like, 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 come on, guys, you're a professional team. Like, you shouldn't all be there. Like, hey, man, that was great. Hey, well done. Like, you could see them all congratulating him on an amazing goal and sure, certainly their sportsmanship and there's the connection and he doesn't celebrate because obviously he still cares about Dortmund but it just struck me as like guys you just lost a Champions League game that you you were winning and could definitely have won shouldn't you be like maybe upset shouldn't you be talking about that in the locker room I don't know maybe I was just in a mood but that seemed odd to me Taylor you have to bend the knee to the Targaryens it's how apparently it's respect <laughs> yeah Okay. All right, let's move up. Well said, dude. We do need to take a break, but let's take a a very quick look at the Bernabeu. Real Madrid 2, Ebi Leipzig 0, Fede Valverde and Marcus Asensio with the goals for Real, um, both coming after the 80th minute here. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti becoming the second manager to win 100 Champions League games behind Mr. Ferguson, who's on 102. So probably Mr. Ancelotti is going to crack that one this season. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti said, uh, I told Fede Valverde that if he didn't score at least 10 goals this season, I'll tear up my coaching license and leave. So maybe he won't beat Sir Alex Ferguson's um, <laughs> record, but we, we shall see. Um, but Valverde, I think that's the second game in a row he scored in. Joe, did you catch this one? I did, yeah. Look, Real Madrid just are inevitable, and it is both beautiful and incredibly frustrating at the same time. Certainly for Abi Leipzig in this game, who I thought were 
excellent for large stretches. It's the same setup for Marco Rosa, that 4-2-3-1, a little bit of different personnel, but generally the same idea. They are attacking in transition. They're building from the back some. They have really quality technical players that, that can do both of those things. And they were giving Real Madrid problems. I thought Leipzig was the better team for 45, 50, 60, 65 minutes. I thought they were the better team and had the better chances, and that, that's reflected in the numbers as well. Even factoring in the two goals, they just barely lost the shots and XG battle in this game, and that, that was with Real Madrid's late push. They just couldn't get it over the line. They had some chances. They still didn't create a ton, and I think that, that needs to improve under Rosa. But, man, there was something in this game for Leipzig, and they just could not see it out. And, again, a big part of that is just how inevitable Real Madrid seemed to be. The goal from Valverde is excellent. The goal from Asensio is also very, very good. That's a 2-0 win, just a regular day for Ancelotti and Real Madrid. Yeah. Can we just acknowledge that Real Madrid are the weirdest team? They go, they go against the grain in so many ways in terms of what we think and should be the case in soccer, and they seem to be at their most dangerous when they're not playing well. We saw that obviously countless times last season when they won the Champions League and nothing seems to have changed over the summer because they struggled in that first half against Celtic, a match they won, won that game 3-0. And as you say, Joe, Leipzig had most of the game, most of the chances, and then this game, Real Madrid won that one. 2-0. So they're just a... I think you summed it up well when you said they are inevitable. I can't explain <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, I think it's it's weird that they have become like a a normal club in the modern era that like Barcelona have pulled levers and been as crazy as they've been. You've got oil money all over the place. Real Madrid just quietly being well run and remodeling their stadium or like renovating their stadium. They just feel like a, a relatable club all of a sudden, which is not something I ever expected to say about them. Yeah, I don't know if they've crossed that threshold quite for me yet, Tati. But yeah, very, very, very well done to them. Kareem Benzema wasn't in this one, Graham, yeah. and looks like he might be on the ropes for the Madrid derby this weekend too. Yeah, so this might seem like a strange argument to make, given that um, since Benzema got injured, Real Madrid have won 3-0, 4-1 and 2-0, two of those games in the Champions League. But I, I think you can still see the impact of his absence on this team. So the first half, as we've covered, was really dismal stuff by Real Madrid. And without Benzema linking the midfield in the attack and dropping deep and spraying the plate, it was just so slow in the build-up. And there's also no width because Vinicius and, and Rodrigo both felt they had to be in the centre areas because um, if they weren't there, then who would be there? And Leipzig were doing a good job of pinning the fullbacks as well, so they weren't offering much width. So you take Benzema out of that team and the profile of Real Madrid becomes very different. They don't have a light-for-light replacement. They don't have anything close to a light-for-light replacement. They played Rodrigo as a as a centre-forward in this game, although his position was a bit weird, and Valverde on the right, even though he was coming into the centre. They played Hazard as a number nine against Celtic. He scored in that game, but that didn't really work. So I expect at some point, if, if Benzema's out for a, for a period uh, of time, I expect at some point that will start to be reflected in some of Real Madrid's results. Indeed. All right, we need to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back in part three, just the 12 other games to talk about. We're going to lead with Chelsea and Mr. Potter's uh, debut at Stamford Bridge. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our Champions League roundup. Let's head to West London where Chelsea drew 1-1 with Ebby uh, Salzburg. Raheem Sterling getting the goal for Chelsea is now the second highest scoring English player in Champions League history with 25 goals. Graham Pop Quiz, who's the most uh, high scoring Champions League player English history? Words wrong uh, I have to, I'm blanking. It's not. It can't be Shearer because obviously he didn't play in the Champions League that long. Kane it's Rooney DC United's very own. Yes, indeed, Wayne Rooney. Christian uh, we, Benteke. Oh, different different <laughs> DC United's own. Gotcha. Uh, and Raheem Sterling overtook Paul Scholes, who had 24. Um, so, what do we make of this one, uh, Joe? Did you catch this one? Graham Potter's first ever Champions League game. Apparent uh, first ever Chelsea game as well, and apparently the first Champions League game he's ever been to as well. He told. Nice. That's actually that's a great nugget. I did not know that. Uh, I thought Chelsea did some good stuff in this game. I thought they did some some mediocre stuff in this game too. A one nil win, I think, would have probably been a, a more fair result than a one one draw. But credit to Salzburg, they didn't bend. I mean, well, they they bent, but they didn't break. Is what I what I meant to say there. I talk for a living. Uh, I, I think a lot of what Chelsea were doing under Graham Potter, and I'd be curious to hear everyone else's perspective on this. To me, it felt like a Graham Potter team which is good, right? A lot of the possession principles we expect. A back three with aggressive center backs, both in terms of personnel and in terms of positioning. You have sort of this 3-5-1-1 shape. It's just a 3-5-2, but with Kai Havertz playing as a number 10. Think about it that way. Underneath Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. A lot of stuff that we've seen at Brighton before, and that's why I enjoyed watching Brighton so much and tried to get you guys on the Brighton bandwagon too. They're fun for, for a smaller team playing that way. It was great. Chelsea kind of already played that way and so uh, there were some minor mac uh, some, some minor micro tactical tweaks from Tuchel to Potter but Taylor for you did you feel like this was I don't know how much of this game you saw did you feel like this was a, a massive overhaul or a change of direction from Thomas Tuchel to me it felt like a team with kind of a lot of the same issues they had before but maybe over time we'll see some of these things that Potter's implemented actually solve those things uh, no, I didn't think it was a massive like tactical adjustment. I think you were correct in your three five one one. I think that's what Graham Potter is going to try to do. But I feel like Graham Potter himself was a good representation of this game. Graham Potter like suddenly wearing like white shirt with a tie, looking all fancy in his suit. I feel like at Brighton he was wearing a polo and a jacket, and so there's like a slight upgrade there. And I feel like there was a slight upgrade. Todd told him if he didn't the- wear the suit, he wouldn't get to coach the All Star game. That's exactly, <laughs> exactly, and they would. Didn't buy that Brazilian club that they're now going to buy. Correct. Tom Bully making some choices. Uh, anyway, uh, but I think like Graham Potter gets a little bit of an upgrade, and I think Chelsea did too, at least in their attacking energy and intent. I think the way they threw things at this game near the end was interesting. I'm not quite sure what their formation was at the end and who was playing where. Even the announcers weren't. Their inability to keep Christian Pulisic and Mason Mount separate is always fun because uh, it makes me feel like I'm not the only one. But I, I, I just felt like there was much more energy there was much more sort of I wouldn't say like team spirit because you still saw everybody getting frustrated I think Hakeem Zayak made everybody pretty mad in his squad but there just seemed to be more belief it seemed to be like things had just gotten that refresh the spring cleaning if you will of sacking a manager so I think Chelsea 
I think probably deserved a win. Again, Joe, as you said, credit to Salzburg for getting the equalizer, for playing uh, through Kovacic staying down and, and getting the equalizer. But I think Chelsea, I fully expected to get that final goal to make it two to one and for this to be a kind of statement game for Graham Potter. But I think the next time they play or the next time they have a game like this, I, I kind of think we will see Chelsea get that goal because I think Graham Potter will continue to move them in the right direction. But I saw, I think we saw a little bit of that spark here, which is no small feat for yeah. an incoming manager. I hope that's the case, right? I hope that's the case for Chelsea. And I'm not saying it won't be. I'm not saying that, that it won't work out. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, right? Usually when we see a manager come in, think about Juventus right now. If, if Allegri ends up heading out of that club, which is seeming more and more likely every day, and someone like Thomas Tuchel comes in, or even someone like Zidane, Zidane Zidane, they play differently than Max Allegri does. Grant Potter and Thomas Tuchel don't really play that different. So I'm curious to see how or or if there are any noticeable changes or improvements, and if there are those things, where do they actually come from? Is it a tactical thing? What do the players attribute it to? I'm just curious to see what this development looks like. A 1-0 win here for Chelsea would have done a lot for that narrative. I think a 1-1 draw actually is, is kind of a curious result that makes us take a step back and think about, okay, what, what is this going to look like? What could it look like? And, and we'll find out about that more as the season goes on. We shall indeed. Let's move on to Sporting 2, Tottenham 0. Uh, Lisbon, uh, Sporting Lisbon had never beaten an English team in the Champions League before this evening. Spurs to the rescue on that front. Um, <laughs> Graham, did you catch this one? Uh, Sporting had um, Marcus Edwards in the lineup once again, impressing. He was the one who was with Tottenham uh, as, um, in their academy, and he was touted by Pochettino as having Messi-like mm-hmm. qualities back in the day. So, um, yeah, what do we make of this one? Yeah, I watched this one while we were recording Americans in Action on Tuesday uh, with Taylor and, and Joe had that on in the background. <laughs> and you still and, won uh, Spurs... the debate? Absolutely unreal. <laughs> unreal. <laughs> Spurs, uh, Spurs got what they deserved from this match. They looked short of ideas. They didn't create much at all. They were poor in the attacking thirds. Um, particularly when the, the matchup in this game should have suited Spurs and the threat that they have in quick transition against teams that play a high line and sporting play a high line. But the midfield just never got control of the match and then Spurs were, were so open in conceding the, the two goals late on to Paulinho and, and Artur Gomez. And I mentioned, I think it was last week, I mentioned uh, Amarim as someone who should have been, he wasn't, but should have been at least in the discussion or the frame for the Chelsea job. And it won't be long until he's mentioned in relation to some big jobs because what he's achieved at Sporting has been incredible. He He's uh, He won the title two seasons ago. He's brought through young players, given them a chance. And then Sporting sold their best players in the summer. And now it looks like he's building another great team. And, and they're just a very talented side. They're, a, they're also a very smart, smart side and that they know how to stay disciplined and when to push. And they were a smarter team than Tottenham in this match for certain. And I think that was one of the differences. Indeed. Bayer Leverkusen 2, Atletico Madrid 0. Hey, guys, guys, have a guess at who came on as a substitute with less than 30 minutes to go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was guess. Antoine Griezmann. It was Antoine Griezmann. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was right. Yeah. You got it, you got it. Uh, didn't make much good for Atletico, unfortunately, though. 2-0 um, defeat here in Leverkusen. Anyone catch that or should we move on? No? Good. Okay, Porto 0, Bruges 4. A shock victory for Bruges. They've got two wins. Uh, they're top of Group B right now, and they beat the aforementioned Leverkusen last week. Uh, they finished bottom of their group last year, so a Bruges doing very well for that city we were told was very boring in that movie that time. Uh, Victoria Pilsen 0 into Milan 2. Dzeko and Dumfries getting the goals in that one. Uh, Marseille 0, uh, Eintracht Frankfurt 1. Eintracht 
uh, first win in this competition. Um, they're on three points, much like Tottenham in Group D. Oh, Shakhtar the next one, Celtic one, Graham. The action in Warsaw here. Do we think Celtic are in a bit of a battle for third place in that group, Graham? Oh, they're definitely in a battle for third. I would say they're also still in the battle for second. Celtic did enough to win this match, and it's been a strange Champions League campaign for them so far because they have they've played well in both games that they've played. Obviously, they played Real Madrid last week, lost that one three 0 which they probably deserve to lose. But nonetheless, they showed what they could do in the first half. But they've only got one point to show for those two games. And um, you look through the numbers from this game, they had eight, eh, sorry, eighty-seven percent, fifty-seven percent of possession. Not quite as emphatic, but they they made uh, five hundred thirty-nine accurate accurate passes to Shakhtar's three hundred ninety-seven. This was a Shakhtar team that had scored four times against RB Leipzig the week before, so they've got some attacking talent. Mm-hmm. But Celtic limited them to an expected goals of zero point three two. Celtic themselves had 16, 16 shots. They finished on one point three expected goals. But the problem that stopped them from getting them a result against Real Madrid was the same problem here, a, a lack of cutting edge. And I think this result just about keeps Celtic in contention, contention for the last 16. I, I believe that they can make the last 16. Obviously, it's going to be difficult with RB Leipzig and Rosa, the impact he's he's made there. But I think they probably need something away to RB Leipzig in match day three, whereas if they'd picked up three points from this game, you could feasibly go to Germany, lose that game, and still qualify for the last 16. So I think match day three is going to be a real pivotal one for Celtic. A uh, bit more of an uphill battle for Rangers, Graham. A 3-0 loss at home to Napoli. Uh, that's Rangers' third consecutive defeat mm-hmm. without scoring. James Sands don't get in the uh, USMNT roster with... Uh, Score lines like that, I guess, huh? Or, or performances like this, or his recent performances. This was always going to be a tough one for Rangers, and, and that's how it proved that in the end. I think they were, they were maybe better than the scoreline suggests. That was slightly flattering for Napoli, but they did deserve to win the game. Um, there was more fight to the Rangers' performance. They could have scored first through Alfredo Morelos. He was back in the team. And it was fairly even, maybe Napoli shading it slightly until James Sands concedes a penalty and gets sent off in the second half. Um, Alan McGregor making his Champions League debut at 40 years old, which seems bizarre to me given the career that he has had. He hasn't played in the Champions League before. That was a surprise to me. But he saves two penalties. Then Rangers concede another one. He couldn't save that one. And then with the man advantage, Napoli just ran rampant in the final 20 minutes. They scored a a second, a very good second through Raspadori. And then Tangiem Dembele, remember him? He completes the scoring at at 3-0 late on. So a good win for Napoli. Joe, do you regret your uh, voluntarily advocating for James Sands to be on the U.S. roster? No, honestly, I'm still kind of <laughs> down, but also I don't really care. <laughs> That's kind of where we're at. <laughs> honestly, see see the suspension. This is going to sound very harsh, but see the suspension he's going to get for the Champions League. That I, I think that's a good thing. He kind of he kind of needs to be. That sounds like a, I'm being very cruel and saying it's a good thing for Rangers. That might also be the case, but I'm meaning for him as a player, he just he kind of needs to be taken out of that team for the, for a, for a couple games and just allowed to reset because he's he's kind of lost his head a little that bit. Does wow. not sound good at all. <laughs> we, we can't trust him with scissors. We don't trust him yet, but one day he'll get the scissors back. We'll see how it goes. Graham just gave him the sit these next few plays out. Yeah, uh, speech. There. All right, wow. there, fella. It's yeah. the same speech Max Allegri is getting. I feel like. <laughs> Why don't we go to the Max Allegri's issues then, Tate? Juventus sure. one, Benfica two. A little bit more pressure on the aforementioned coach there. Back to back Champions League defeats. Um, not looking good. Yeah. Benfica, by the way, have won all twelve of their games this season. They're looking jolly lovely. Not so much for you, Tate. Not so much, no. If Max Allegri gets invited to to think about all the rabbits he's going to get to hang out with one day, I think he should be nervous. That's a John, Stein, John Steinbeck reference for, uh, for you 
AP US literature fans out there. Uh, but yeah, I think Max Allegri maybe is going to have some uh, confidence talks this week. I'm guessing we'll get a report about how the Juve board fully backs him and fully believes in him, all while Mauricio Pochettino is uh, sizing up the curtains in the office. Uh, <laughs> we've seen what Pochettino linked. Tuchel continues to be linked, as has Zidane heavily. I think Zidane gets a lot of the attention. I got that question on Twitter. Why is everyone linking Zidane to that club? Because he played there, because he was a Juve player, has had the success as a manager at Madrid, excuse me, so has proven himself capable of of managing big clubs in big moments. Uh, but I do think Tuchel or Pochettino make a lot of sense there as well. Allegri making less and less sense, and not just because of results like this, but because Juve, I feel like in the past, when they were sort of stuttering, not quite finding their form. Like, I think of them under Maurizio Sarri. It was still nil-nil games. It was still one-to-one games. They just weren't able to take it to that next level. But there was a consistency and stability about them that they just lack at this point. That when they get that the opener, it felt like, here we go. They they got the goal. They're looking good. This is the Juve we expect. And then Benfica just fight their way back in and make something happen. And Juve capitulate and then don't seem entirely inclined to have that big fight back that you would expect, especially at home. So I think Allegri has his work cut out for him if he's allowed to have his work cut out for him, put it that way. Yeah. Nice Steinbeck reference, Tater. Um, I'm sure Allegri's post-match wine will be made with the grapes of wrath. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. There we go. Uh, Copenhagen nil, severe nil uh, in the game that you almost certainly didn't watch in Group G. Man (laughs) City and Tottenham, and Dortmund, excuse me, likely to go through in that one. Uh, Milan 3, Dynamo Zagreb 1. Milan atop of Group E with that result. And last but not least, let's go to Maccabee for 1, Paris Saint-Germain 3. Look at that, Joe. Lionel Messi, Neymar and Kylian Mbappe all scoring like best friends. We're not leading with Josh Cohen, you know, almost keeping a clean sheet if you discount the three goals that PSG scored. I feel like that that's where we should start. No, really, they tried. Really where... They tried on CBS. They really, really tried. Yeah. I mean, hey, Maccabee Haifa had the lead in this game after 24 minutes, and they kept it all the way until the 37th, which is... <laughs> sounds like I'm grasping for straws, and I am, but still, <laughs> yeah, impressive. It sounds like you're making fun of them. It's what impressive. It like. <laughs> they had two former American college soccer players in their lineup, Maccabi Haifa. And, and you want to guess how many of those PSG have? It's zero. It's zero. And I, that does tell you a little something about the difference I here. thought Neymar played for UC Santa Barbara, no? Oh, no. Well, I think you redshirted that year, Taylor, actually. And then oh, my bad. My bad. That's right. That's yeah, right. He went That's back right. to Thanks, Santos. Any, anyway, I'm taking this down a weird road. The, the, the best part of this game, I think, is the, the stat now that Messi has become the first player to score in 18 straight Champions League seasons. 18. That blew my mind. That absolutely blew my mind that Messi has been around for that long and has continued to be dominant for that long. He is the greatest player of all time. There is no debate about this. He is also inevitable, sort of, kind of, but not in the same way that Real Madrid are, I guess. Wow. Graham, you've had, you have some comments to make about PSG in this performance, I understand. Yeah, I thought this was their, their worst performance of the season so far, um, which, you know, is saying something given that they still go away from home in the Champions League and, and win 3-1. They, ha- they have been very impressive under Gaultier this season, but th- this was kind of a throwback to what last season was like. It was sloppy, there wasn't much pressing, not much movement. Um, Maccabi Haifa take the lead, obviously. They could have scored a second. They had a couple other good opportunities as well. And this isn't to say that PSG didn't deserve to win. They did. They were having a lot of joy getting in behind. But everything felt a bit ragged and it felt dependent on the individual quality of players rather than the system or anything that Guilty has, has built. So even though they did win this game, a, a couple of warning signs for, for future matches. 
Indeed. All right, that just about wraps up our Game Week 2 review. We've got to wait a full three weeks until the next round of Champions League. I can't hardly wait. But in the meantime, Graham Ruffin, thank you very much for your contributions. Thank you, Rain Billy. Take to Rockwell. Pleasure as always. Pleasure was mine, sir. Joe Lowry, well done again, sir. Right back at you. And listener, well done to you for sticking with us for this long. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.